Today is November 26th. It is the Sunday of Thanksgiving week. And I hope, I assume, that we have all had too much pie this weekend. Um, but actually, is that a thing? Can you have too much pie? I think um, only when all the pie has been eaten have we had too much pie. Anyway, I hope you had a great weekend. Thank you to those who posted a few suggestions for today's lecture on current events with a historical perspective. I will try to address uh, some of your questions, maybe add some more. Um, and, you know, by any accounts, it's been a momentous week. And we can start with the obvious reason, Thanksgiving, a most American of holidays, right? Not so much, actually. Thanksgiving is a harvest celebration, which actually happens anywhere where harvests happen. And it happened a lot more uh, before industrialization, but it still happens quite often, um, you know, in, at the end of harvest. Different countries and different religions celebrate the harvest. There are even industry-specific celebrations. For example, in the wine industry, when all the grapes have been picked, there's a big harvest dinner. And you might have heard of Holi, the Northern Indian Harvest Festival. Perhaps you've heard of Sukkot, the traditional Jewish festival that celebrates the wheat harvest, or Eid, which is the Muslim harvest festival, or Samhain, the Wiccan festival of harvest. And then there's Erntedankenfest, which is, I just like saying it, it's a very long German word, uh, is uh, the harvest celebration that's celebrated in Germany and Austria. And then the actual sort of Thanksgiving that looks a little bit like the American Thanksgiving is also celebrated in the Dutch town of Leiden. It's been celebrated there for centuries, and that's going to be relevant in about a minute. Um, so there are many other festivals and religious celebrations that are all tied to the gratitude that people felt that the, around the harvest, right? The fact that the harvest had come in meant that there was a high likelihood that they might survive the winter into the next springtime. And what makes the United States Thanksgiving unique is that it blends this traditional agricultural celebration with the myth of benevolent colonialism. So Thanksgiving was celebrated after the harvest. And one of the theories is that pilgrims, being Protestant exiles from Britain, had observed the Thanksgiving celebration while they were in Leiden, that Dutch town that welcomed Christians and uh, refugees from the Church of England, but that's also that Dutch town that celebrated Thanksgiving. So maybe it's, it's the pilgrims in their travels through Europe before heading to the New World had picked up this tradition. And again, the celebration is unique in the U.S. because the story of pilgrim and native support and cooperation becomes such a huge part of Thanksgiving lore. And why, why, is that, why is this such a big part of the story? Well, because there is some truth to it, right? Sort of myths don't come out of nowhere. There's always a little bit of truth in the myth. And there's a truth to the fact that pilgrims were helped by the Wampanoags through a brutal winter. And there's truth that the pilgrims did this in exchange for their alliance with the Wampanoags against the Narragansetts. So that happened. But over time, the diseases that the pilgrims brought with them, against which the Wampanoags or any Native American really had no defenses, coupled with sort of gradual imperialistic expansion of Europeans in the territory, really weakened Native populations beyond any measure. So if you look at the history just over those first two years, it might look like a productive alliance. It might look like a, a union worth celebrating. But over the couple of decades, things started to look really differently. And yet the holiday, to this day, remains 
and celebrates that short moment. Because for a long time, it was politically, a politically useful myth. It was politically useful to remember a moment when pilgrims, white settler colonialists, were friends with the people that they subjugated. Now, before you, you know, this, is, this type of myth-making is part of every nation. The United States did not invent this. It invented this particular story, but it's not, it's not alone in this. Every nation has its origin story, and every nation has an origin story that is partly true and, and partly imagined. Mexico's origin story involves an eagle on a cactus eating a snake. Did that happen? Well, it's on, the, it's on the Mexican flag now. It's part of its origin story. And so what we need to understand, we don't need to dismiss the origin stories. We just understand their purpose, but also understand that the official history generally benefits those that tell it. And uh, I may be missing some details. And as historians, what we do is look for those details. Now, while we're talking about myth-making, uh, this week was kind of tumultuous in the world of artificial intelligence. You might have followed um, the travails of Sam Altman, a really well-known person in the, in the world of AI, um, who was both fired and then rehired by OpenAI, the company that he founded. Now, I really actually don't care about what happened, what prompted the board and some of the collaborators to turn against him. I mean, like Silicon Valley bro breakups are... Yeah, not interesting to me. But AI hype is. It's interesting because it's, it continues to, to tell us something about our both fascination and fear of technology. And that has a long history. Now, the OpenAI scandal coincided with a New Yorker interview with Jeffrey Hinton, who is the godfather of AI. This is the man we owe our understanding of neural networks and computing to. He will forever be associated with technology. Now, he studied, uh, the, the, this is all from the, from the New Yorker piece. Hinton studied at Cambridge, um, but, he, you know, he didn't start off as a brilliant student. He, he tried different fields and was really kind of dismayed that he kind of wasn't that great at any of them. He was never the brightest student in any class. Um, and so the New York article says that he left college briefly to read depressing novels and do odd jobs in London. And then he returned um, and apparently did one day in architecture school and then tried out physics, chemistry, physiology and philosophy and finally settled on a degree in experimental psychology. And now he's the most cited computer and cognitive scientist on Google Scholar. Right. So he goes from like reading depressing novels to now being you know, sort of uh, not just world famous, but like, like the uh, most cited scholar on Google Scholar. Now, he had no idea what he wanted to do when he started college. He, he was actually haunted by the fact that his father told him he would never be as good as he was. Um, and, and it took him a really long time to find his passion. So I'm sharing this with you because if you ever feel like you don't know what you're doing or you're not sure you're doing the right thing, or if you'll ever live up to someone else's expectations or find your passion, 
I just want you to go easy on yourselves, okay? You, you have time. Now, Hinton will forever be remembered for a technology against which he is now warning us. He's concerned about the potential for autonomous machines to become too autonomous and that they don't have the ethical backbone that our organic neural network, right, our brains, have developed it. Now, Hinton is obviously not your typical techno-paranoid. Like, he invented this stuff, so maybe we should believe him. But then again, most techno-hellscapes never happen the way we imagine them. And none of the techno-utopias have so far come to, like, exist. Right? The internet has not created a better world of better informed people. I mean, yes, you can learn to play the guitar on YouTube, but it doesn't necessarily make you a great player. And so just as people were worried that when the printing press was invented, human brain would rot because humans wouldn't need to remember anything anymore, um, maybe you know, that didn't happen either, right? You know, the printing press was invented and people just started reading more. Our brains did not rot. So, but this is a, a version of every fear about every technology at any moment in time, right? The fear is that this new technology will rot our brain or this new technology is going to replace us. Well, so far, humans have not been replaced, right? Our brains haven't rotted and we haven't been replaced. However, our ability to tell fact from fiction is, is being tested. So my concern with AI is that too many people will actually think that AI is getting things right. I'm concerned that that's going to be across the board, that the many types of tests that, and, and, and sorting that AI is going to be asked to do um, are not going to be questioned by you, by me, by anyone. I hope that you have used ChatGPT in your research, and I hope you've noticed its limitations. Like every other source that does not provide citations, right, which AI very rarely provides your citation, you have to double check what it tells you because ChatGPT can invent information. Remember, AI is not scraping the internet to find information. It is generating some of it. It is making it up. And sometimes it is straight up lying to you. And so while we are on the subject of fake info, let me segue to our next topic of the day. Some of you asked, what's the deal with Starbucks? And how is it related to the Palestine-Israel conflict? And, um, well, I, you know, let me see if I can make sense of the Starbucks situation. So as far as I understand, the Starbucks employee union tweeted its solidarity with the Palestinian cause. The Starbucks, the company, then essentially sued the union for using a logo in that tweet that was very similar to the Starbucks logo. And the reason why Starbucks sued the union was because people had read that tweet and assumed it came from Starbucks, the company, and therefore started boycotting Starbucks because of its pro-Palestine position. Now, nothing is ever simple. And what followed is people who support Palestine and found out that Starbucks company was suing Starbucks union for that tweet, they then boycotted Starbucks because Starbucks was obviously in support of Israel because if it didn't support Palestine, it supported Israel. Now, 
Generally, companies like Starbucks try really hard not to take a position, a political position. I mean, a cup of coffee is not a political statement, and making political statements generally is really bad for business. But as the case of Starbucks shows, maybe coffee is a political statement, and it, I'm not quite sure what Starbucks could have done to keep, make it not political. Now, Starbucks then made a statement that it unequivocally condemns acts of hate, terrorism, and violence in Israel and Gaza this week. So trying to support and defend both sides of the conflict. But that made no difference, right? To hundreds of TikTok videos and testimonials accused the company of supporting Israel because it had not supported Palestine sufficiently. So that's the story. That's what happened. It's a suit. It's a, it's, it's, it's a tweet, a boycott, a lawsuit, and another boycott. And then a ton of TikTok videos. And the fact is, we have reached a moment in history where coffee is not just coffee anymore, and where history is being really literally reduced to TikTok bites and viral Instagram stories. And, and this, this situation is a little bit worrisome because when groups of people are being demonized, it's really usually only done in order to justify violence against them, right? And so this kind of, kind of categorically pushing people on one, in one camp or another doesn't end well. And I wanted to talk about a couple of examples in the 20th century when ethnic groups were being demonized. So, for example, I mean, the Soviets demonized capitalists. Capitalists are not an um, ethnic group, but they demonized an entire class and sent them to gulags, to prisoner camps in Siberia. During the Cultural Revolution, Mao demonized intellectuals. Again, not an ethnic group, but they... He, demonized intellectuals as tools of capitalism, subjected them to torture, and sometimes death. In Europe, in the 30s and 40s, Hitler demonized Jews, an ethnic group, and the Roma people, an ethnic group, and homosexuals, not an ethnic group. But he did that all to make it easier to exterminate them. And more recently, in 1994, in Rwanda, the Tutsi ethnic group were demonized by their rival political and ethnic group, the Hutu. The Hutu targeted the Tutsi specifically to eliminate them. And they spent months and years before trying to exacerbate existing tensions and painting the Tutsis as literal devils. I mean, they drew up lists of quote-unquote traitors, then labeled them as cockroaches and non-human pests. And in April of 1994, over the course of 100 days, members of the Hutu ethnicity killed almost a million members of the Tutsi ethnicity. Now, I'm not going to go into details about this awful moment in the Rwandan civil war. But there's a great Amazon Prime documentary called This is Football. Um, it's a couple of years old, I think like 2019. And the first episode is about how important football or soccer has been to the transformation of Rwanda after that horrific violence, but that also that sectarianism, right? That the, the, the pitting of, of, of one group of people against another for reasons that are not simple, you know, that are largely imagined. So let me close with this. Like tech bro breakups, it doesn't matter to me if no one ever drinks Starbucks again. But I would just like us not to be so categorical. I'd like us to ask more questions. Because when history is happening in real time, asking questions is much more important than getting answers. You're not going to get answers in real time. But 
But if you ask more questions, you might get a better understanding of what's going on. And, and that's worth a lot. Now, the best advice I can give you is also the advice in a recent Wired article about spotting misinformation online. Try to f know as much as possible where your information is coming from. Don't just Google it. Google is, is just a highway. It's not the destination. So look at what Google is providing you when you enter a search term and see if you can tell where the information comes from. And then check the context of that information. Does it make sense, right? If one of your searches returns you a video of Columbus landing on the island of San Salvador, you know that that does not make sense. That video cannot be true. Obviously, that's, an, that's, that's extreme. Sometimes it's not going to be so easy to figure out whether what you're seeing makes sense. And then, then you, you have to keep looking. Right? You have to dig a little bit deeper. Now, social media is just going to expose you to massive amounts of information. And your feed is often going to get stuff without much context or an explanation, right? Because your feed is largely going to be targeting you. They know what you like, and you're going to be getting more of it. And what you're going to get is going to elicit an emotional response from you. And then you'll start seeing it everywhere else. It'll be retagged and copied and liked. And when that happens, I want you to ask yourself why that is. Why is this information viral? Because viral information is rarely reliable information. But what is it reliable is if you start asking yourself, why is this in my feed? And then you'll figure out something. Which leads me to my last piece of advice. Do more research. Ask more questions. I am so sorry that there's no shortcut here. AI isn't going to help. I mean, maybe one day, but... Not today. It's on you. And it's on all of us to do the research and to know what stories we're being told and to know what buttons are being pushed. And rather than react, ask more questions. I look forward to your questions. Have a great week.